0: If you have your bibles with you, would you take them out and turn to Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is our psalm for today. What we have here is a short psalm. I believe it's a very beautiful psalm. It's a beautiful psalm and its content, it's not as complex or Uh, Delicate, perhaps, as some of the more intricate psalms that have been arranged in acrostic patterns, but it has a a beauty in the content of this psalm. It shows us the beauty of holiness. The Bible describes David for us as a man after God's own heart, and this psalm describes David's heart. So, this is a, a lesson for us. I think perhaps Charles Spurgeon introduced this psalm the best. He said, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read but its lesson is one of the longest psalms to learn. It's one of the shortest to read, but its lesson on contentment is one of the longest ones for us to learn. Would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? This is God's holy inerrant, inspired word given to us in Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, this is your word given to us that we might be fully equipped for every good work, that we might learn your ways. Learn to have our hearts fashioned after yours, to see the beauty of Christ and the beauty of holiness. We pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see these things in their fullness and be changed even this morning into the image of Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What would it take to make you content? What would it take for you today to feel content? I didn't want to begin by asking, are you content? Because I sort of work with the assumption that all of us struggle with this. And so the question is just this. What would it take? What is it that you dream of? What is it that you spend your time thinking about that if only you had fill in the blank, then you would be happy? Then you would be content? Long ago, a Puritan pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs, wrote a book and he titled it, The Rare Jewel of Christian contentment. The rare jewel of Christian contentment, and indeed, what a rare jewel it is. It's, it's precious, and it's valuable beyond description when we find it as a character trait that evidences a heart like Christ, and yet it's very rare. Christian contentment. Christian contentment. This is how Jeremiah Burroughs defined Christian contentment. He said, Contentment is that sweet, inward, Quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. I feel more content just reading that. Let me read it for you again. Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And what we have in Psalm 31, 131 is David's school of contentment. This is where he teaches us how to attain contentment. How to acquire for ourselves this sweet, inward, gracious frame of spirit that is able to truly delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal to us. How to learn to submit to that gladly and freely. And Psalm 131 has three verses, and it shows us three things. shows us, first, some dangers to our contentment. Second, a picture of contentment. And third, he gives us the secret to contentment. Some dangers to our contentment, a picture of our contentment. And finally, he gives us the secret of contentment. But first, in verse 1, David does for us here, he, he lists for us three dangers to contentment. And these three things are they're enemies of your contentment. And David says in this verse, I don't do these three things. This is what I have not done. So he says to the Lord, in all honesty, O Lord, and he lists three things that he does not do. And he says, we must fight vigilantly against these three things. These are dangers that will keep you from ever being content. I'm reminded of what Ligon Duncan once said about contentment. He said, the fight for contentment is not for sissies. It is a fight to learn contentment and to be able to practice contentment, and it is a fight to the death. And he says it is not one for sissies. I don't know what picture comes to your mind when you think of contentment. Perhaps the picture is just of the the meek and the mild, sort of the resigned, who no longer has any desires or ambitions in the world, but is just resigned to whatever they have, and and so they feel contentment. Uh, Maybe it's someone who's given up, but but this reminds us that it's a fight for us, that we are all instructed to be content. The New Testament urges us, it tells us, this is the Christian virtue that we are to pursue, that we are to be content. It's one of God's requirements, his commands on us. And these are the three dangers. The three dangers he lists are pride, over-ambition, and presumption. Pride over ambition and presumption. The first thing to notice about these three dangers is all of them are internal dangers. All of them are internal dangers. He doesn't describe the things that are around you in your context or in your circumstances. They describe the sins that are sins of the heart. These are inward dangers. They're dangers on the inside. The danger to your contentment is not external to you. So that means the danger to your contentment, the thing that keeps you from being content, is not your job not your bank account. It's not your your family and your friends and all the people who make demands of you that are around you. The the only danger to your contentment is inside. It's in your heart. It's a sweet, quiet, gracious, inward frame of spirit that is contentment. Perhaps you've heard the story, which I I think is apocryphal, of G.K. Chesterton, who a London newspaper once wrote to him and asked him if he would participate with some other authors in submitting an answer to the question, What is wrong with the world? And he wrote back to the paper and he said, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. I, I don't know if that story is true or not, but it illustrates the truth. That what's wrong with the world is not going to be the things that are out there around us. It's what's inside. It's what's in our hearts. And that's how it is with contentment. The things that keep us from being content, no matter your circumstances, the things are not out there. It's an inward issue in your heart. And so it is. The first danger to contentment is pride. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In biblical language, to have your heart be lifted up too high is a description of pride. To think too highly of yourself. This is the first thing that's always, every time, going to immediately undermine our contentment. If contentment is this, it's the sweet, inward, quiet frame of spirit which freely submits to, and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal, pride can't do that. Pride can never submit to God's wise, fatherly disposal for us because pride is always going to be saying, I'm better than this, and I deserve better than this. I, I feel like I am better, I'm, my heart is lifted up, I am better than this, and I deserve better than what I have. Pride can't submit to what it gets because it always thinks it deserves something better. So the proud person is the person who enters a party or a banquet and is satisfied with nothing, nothing less than the seat of honor at that banquet. When I worked in the restaurants, we would always have people who come in and you try to show them to a table, but nothing is good enough. It's too close to the kitchen, or it's too close to the door, or it's too close to the bathrooms, or it's not close enough to the window. There was nothing that could please them because their hearts were lifted up. Jesus even told his, his disciples this parable, about going into a banquet, he said, don't seek the seat of honor. Seek the lowest seat. Seek the lowest condition and be content. Be happy with that. And it might be that someone will tell you to move up and you'll be honored by that. But don't seek it for yourself. Pride is never able to submit to God or even to delight. That's the description of contentment, not only that we submit to God's wise and fatherly disposal in our lives, but that we delight in it that we find joy in what he does in and for us. The second danger is not pride, but overreaching ambition. And he says in verse 1, My eyes are not raised too high. So if pride is the temptation to think too highly of myself, overreaching ambition is the temptation to seek too much for myself. Now, Now, ambition itself, aspiring is not all bad. It's not always a bad thing. We know this. The scriptures tell us to have ambitions. First, First Timothy chapter 3, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of elder, he aspires to a noble thing. That's an ambition that we ought to have. First Thessalonians 4 says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. When godly things are sought in a godly way and for godly purposes, that is godly ambition. There are certain aspirations and ambitions for our life. We ought to seek certain things that we might not currently have. But there's also such a thing as overreaching ambition. Ambition gone crazy when it becomes a sin. There are several ways that that we can raise our eyes too high. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. How do we know that it's too high? Well, perhaps... We're seeking something we ought never to have. Perhaps we're seeking the wrong thing. And the Bible tells us it's something we ought not to seek for. Or perhaps we're seeking something but for the wrong reason. Perhaps it's an it's a honorable, godly thing to have, but we seek it for the wrong reason. We seek it so that we might be glorified, so that we might be lifted up and, and praised rather than seeking it for God's glory and his praise. Perhaps we seek a good thing for a good reason, but we seek it in the wrong way. Anytime we are aspiring to something or for something and the only way for us to attain it is by sinning, that's overreaching ambition. That's a failure to be content when we say, I must have this even if it requires me to do what I ought not to do. So we can seek the wrong things or seek for the wrong reasons or seek in the wrong way or even seeking something at the wrong time. And this is the hardest to discern, but it's possible to have a a good ambition for a good thing, to seek it for the right reason and in the right way, and yet to do so at the wrong time. To to sense, in whatever way, that the Lord has not given such a thing to you at this time, that in his wise and fatherly disposal he has something else for you, and yet you kick against those goads. You seek it anyway. You, You do not submit to or delight in God's providential ordering of your lives, and you continue to seek Ambitiously for that which God would not have you to have, perhaps just at this time. Maybe he will have it for you in the future. Ungodly ambition will always be the enemy of contentment. Ungodly ambition to seek what is not ours in the wrong way at the wrong time will always be the enemy of our contentment. And the third danger is presumption. So there's pride, overreaching ambition, and then presumption, as he says at the end of verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I do not occupy myself, I don't think about things that are too great or too marvelous for me. This is one of the, the most telling marks of a content person. Is that they humbly receive what God sends their way without demanding that God explain himself that they're able to not only submit to but delight in God's disposal of their lives and they receive it and they're content with it and they don't demand that God explain his reasons for it, whatever the circumstance may be. They don't presume to know things only God can know and they don't demand to understand things that only the Lord can understand. One of the hallmarks of a discontent person is that they will always keep God in the dock. He's always on the stand. He always must be answering for his actions, for answering what he has done and why he has done it and why at this particular time. Why not something else? Why has he not ordered my life a certain way? And to do this is simply to be presumptuous that I am wiser than God. It's to be presumptuous that, that if I were sovereign, I think I could probably do a better job at this whole running the universe business than God is currently doing. And it would be nice if he would recognize that. That's what we say when we are complaining and grumbling. Like the Israelites in the wilderness complaining and grumbling. Lord, it's not enough that you've redeemed us out of slavery. Now we're hungry. And they complain and they whine against God's fatherly disposal of their condition. It's presumptuous. And presumption is the sin of the person who thinks they're wiser than God. And no presumptuous person has ever known contentment. Has ever known contentment. They have never delighted in God's disposal of their lives. They've never delighted in God's providences, easy or difficult, whatever they may be, that come into our life, the presumptuous person may not delight in them. Why? Because it's a failure of trust. It's a failure to say that the God who orders the days of my life, who know each one of my steps before any one of them came to pass, must not love me enough, or he must not care for me enough. It's a failure to trust his fatherly goodness in ordering all things and all circumstances for our good. That's the sin of presumption. And David says, I don't occupy myself with things too great or marvelous for me. I don't presume to know what only God can know. Rather, I accept it from his hand, I delight in it, and I submit to it. Pride, overreaching ambition, and presumption, the three dangers that will keep us from contentment. But in verse 2, he gives us a picture of contentment. He describes what it looks like. And this is an important verse. If we're going to attend to Contentment 101, to sit in the school of Christ and learn contentment from him, we need to start here. Start here. Listen to what David says. I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have calmed and quieted my soul. I want us to see two things about just that part of the verse. First, notice that David is speaking here of an action that he is taking. I have calmed and I have quieted my soul. David is speaking of something that he is actively doing. He is pursuing contentment. And and to pursue it means he has to work at it. It's not enough to be passive in the pursuit of contentment. He can't just sit back and say, eventually, one of these days, I will get everything that I hope for, and if God so orders my life and the stars align just so, Then I'll be content. Maybe I I can see myself at 75 being content. No, David says, I'm working on it actively. There are steps that I'm taking. I have calmed and I have quieted my soul. Contentment is something we actively pursue and we fight for in our lives. But second, notice the type of work that he does. It's heart work. It's heart work. It's not, not hard work. It's that too. But he's saying it's heart work. It's inward. It's soul work that he is doing because the sin of discontentment is always a heart issue. He's not saying, I have pursued contentment by going out and getting everything that my heart desires, by working hard to increase my my resources, to increase my possessions in order to attain to contentment. No, he says, "It's, it's on the inside. I've calmed and quieted my soul. I'm not working, if these are my expectations and this is my reality, I'm not working hard to bring my reality up to my expectations. I'm calming my inward spirit to be content with what I have. I think if we're honest in thinking about contentment, this is just one of those virtues that that is so difficult. I think we all struggle with it. And if if we were to just go around the room and say what it would take for us to be content, what it is that is the source of our discontent, we almost always would think of something first and say, well, I'm not content because because this. I I don't have the job that I wish I had. I, I don't have the social life that I wish I had. Uh, My family makes demands on me that I feel are unreasonable. We would always list all these external things. My my bank account is just not what it should be. I wish I were driving the, the late model car instead of my long, long ago model car. We always list the circumstances as the reason for our discontent, but here's the truth. Your circumstances are totally irrelevant to your level of contentment. Whatever the circumstances of your life may be at this time, it's irrelevant to how content you may be because contentment is a matter of the heart. Contentment's a matter of the heart. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, we know these verses. Paul can say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why does he say he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, except that the situation is irrelevant? That is not what influences his contentment. It's a heart issue. It's internal. He's learned the same thing that David has learned, that contentment has everything to do with your heart being happy in Christ, trusting him fully, leaning on his word, and it has nothing to do with your circumstances you might think, well, that may be true, but, but I think I still feel like my circumstances hinder my contentment. They, just, they make it harder. I don't have the things I want, and so my circumstances, they just make it harder for me than it is for other people. If I had more, okay, maybe that wouldn't make me content. It sure be a little easier, though, wouldn't it? And usually the answer is no. In that book that Jeremiah Burroughs wrote, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he has a chapter titled uh, The Burden of Abundance. It's the burden of of a prosperous condition is the words he uses. He says, if you have a lot, if you have a prosperous condition, he says that is going to be quite the burden for you to overcome in your pursuit of contentment. Because it's those who abound who have the most, who, Who, as the more we have, the more we want. The more we have, the more trouble we have in maintaining the things that we have. He says that will be a big step backwards for you in this pursuit of contentment. If you have a hard condition... If you have very little, that's an advantage to you in seeking after this virtue of contentment. That's the burden of the prosperous condition. But but here he describes for us in, in verse 2. Now he gives us this picture, picture of what contentment is like. It's like a weaned child with its mother. A weaned child with its mother. Now, if you've had children, you know how babies can be when they're hungry. Now, you know how a little baby can be. It just cries in a, in a overly dramatic completely irrational way as if to say mom i have never eaten before in my entire life and it's just like death to me that you're not feeding me at this very moment and that's how they sound and, and it's ridiculous because you see them there and they have all their needs supplied for them their mother is right next to them, and they just wail like it, like they're just dying dying of hunger is why did you even bring me into this world if you're just going to let me sit here and perish from hunger Our babies were like that. I don't know if your babies have been like that, but that was our experience. And I remember Aubrey and I would would laugh at our babies when they were nursing, and they would do that because it's such a ridiculous picture. This child who has all of their needs met and their their mother sitting right next to them, acting out in that way. We have to laugh. And yet, it's less funny when we recognize how accurately that description portrays our hearts sometimes how in our own spirits we can have that same attitude of discontentment, of, oh, Lord, why did you even bring me into this world if you're not going to prosper me or bless me with this or that or whatever it is that we desire? We cry out full of drama to the Lord, why, Lord, why would you do that to us? And this is the picture of contentment, and the content heart is like the wean child, the child that's able to rest, That's able to relax. The child that's not desperate for that which it does not have. Think of how David himself had to learn contentment in his life. If we think this is easy for David or came to him naturally, think of how he had to go about learning the art of contentment in his own life. Think of 1 Samuel. In chapter 15, Saul, the king of Israel, is rejected by the Lord for sinning against the Lord. And in chapter 16, now Uh, The prophet Samuel, he goes and he anoints David to be the king of Israel. Secretly, he anoints him. And so from that point on, who is David? David is the anointed, rightful king of Israel. But does he reign on the throne from that point? He does not. Saul is still reigning on the throne. Here, he's in this weird place where where he's the rightful king. Saul has been rejected, but Saul is still sitting on the throne. He's still alive, and David... There's nothing he can do. He must wait. He will not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And so he's waiting, and for, we don't know exactly how long. It might have been 15 or 20 years. Here was David in in his life and all of his trials, his ups and downs, through conditions when Saul was even trying to kill him. What must David have thought? Lord, I am the anointed king of Israel. You've made these promises, not even just general, but very specific promises. And, And yet, for years, And years, and years, the circumstances of his life did not match the promises that had been given to him. The the external circumstances, the reality which he faced day by day, did not seem to match what he thought it should be. How do you learn contentment in a situation like that? For years, 15, maybe 20 years, of people trying to kill him, enemies frustrating his every plan, when he should have been the king and yet in the midst of that, think of what it would have taken for David to write, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. If we were David, I mean, think, we would have used the words like, well, I, I suppose the Lord is closing this door for me. I mean, 20 years later and things have not panned out. And do we freely submit to, do we delight in God's providential ordering of our lives? Think of what it would have taken for David to say, Lord, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Lord, this life is not what I assumed it was going to be 15 years ago when I was anointed as king. But Lord, I don't presume to know what you're up to. I don't presume to know the reasons you have in your secret sovereignty for ordering the world the way that you've chosen to do it. He trusts the Lord. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Those were not easy words for David to write. They could not have been. To calm and to quiet his soul in the midst of a world which seemed to be so completely opposite of the way that he thought it should have been. Even judging by what God had said, he would have looked at the scripture and said, it should be like this, and it's not. Where is God in all of this? But David didn't learn contentment through having everything he wanted. He learned contentment through having nothing he wanted except the word of the Lord and God's promises to him. One commentator looked at this, this picture of this wean child. He says, we don't learn contentment through having much. We... We often learn contentment through loss. It's this child who, who now everything he's known and loved his entire life, all his sources of life and nourishment have been taken away, and he's now moving on to a harder stage of life. He says that's when you learn contentment. It's not by abounding, it's by being in need. It's not through gain, it's by loss. That's when we learn what it is to be content. And that's how David would learn the discipline, of calming and quieting his soul because it needed to be done. In that time, his soul was not naturally calm and quiet. It did not naturally submit to and delight in the Lord's providence. He had to work. He had to submit himself intentionally and deliberately to God and to his word to calm and to quiet his soul because he had to. And I believe that Hebrews 11 is is testimony for us of how he did it. He did it by faith. He did it by faith. This is the secret of contentment. If if verse 1 says what he did not do, verse 2 says what he does do and gives us this picture of contentment, verse 3 now is his exhortation to all of us. And this is the secret of being content. O Israel, hope in the Lord. That's the secret. Hope in the Lord. Now, now that may sound simple it might even sound a little simplistic to say of course that's the secret this is church it sounds like it should be but but think of what it means think of what this means i think it's actually quite profound to say every time that your heart begins to feel discontent and you start hoping that your life was different you start hoping you had more money say oh my heart do not hope in money do not hope that money will be the answer to my problems hope in the lord if you begin to feel your heart yearning, if only I had a different job that, that was more suited to me, that, that fit me better, I, I could be so much happier to just say, oh my soul, do not put your hope in a better job. Hope in the Lord. We are so prone to hope in, hope in a new car. We're so prone to hope in uh, family peace or a, a different sort of social life. And he says, hope in the Lord. Don't hope in those things. Those things will let you down and make empty promises. Hope in The Lord, put your hope on Christ. Where are we going to get the strength to not lift up our hearts in pride when we are disappointed with life? It's by looking at Christ. By seeing the the beauty and the holiness of Christ and his surpassing worth and and humbling ourselves before him. Where are we going to get the strength to, to not lift up your eyes in overreaching ambition? when you feel as though God or the world or life owes you something and you want to go get it, it's only by focusing on Christ. It's only by reminding your heart of the fullness of blessing that is yours in Christ, that everything you could ever need or desire is yours in Christ. Where do you get the strength to not presume to know the secret things of God? It's by receiving Christ by seeing that, that his cross meets your every need, where do you get the strength to calm and to quiet your soul in the face of unsatisfying circumstances in life? It's by fixing your eyes, not on things below, but on Christ, seated at the right hand of God, rather than fixing your eyes on your circumstances. And it's recognizing that because you are in Christ, your circumstances are never unsatisfying. You are in Christ. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are redeemed by Christ. You have the adoption as sons in Christ. You are forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future, because you are in Christ. In Christ, you have received an inheritance that is yours, an eternal inheritance with Christ in heaven. You have the fullness of God in Christ is yours, the hope of glory. What's unsatisfying about your circumstances? It's simply because we fail to think of Christ and we instead are wallowing in the dirt of our circumstances, refusing to look up and to see our everlasting satisfaction. And so we can be content because we put our hope not in our circumstances, we put our hope in Christ. And so every time you find that discontentment rising in your soul and it's your duty now, like David, to calm and to quiet your soul, just say to yourself, heart, look to Christ. See what is ours in him. See what every fullness of blessing is given to us through the cross of Christ. Hope, O my soul, in the Lord. This was Paul's secret as well, wasn't it? Paul said in Philippians, I count everything else as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Everything else is nothing to him. When he considered his circumstances, what did he look at? He didn't look at the prison that he was in or the food that he lacked or the freedom that he did not have. He looked at Christ. That was his joy. That's how he knew how to be content. And he says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know what those all things are that Paul can do? We tend to see it inscribed on eye black and, and think of athletic accomplishments that he can do. What he meant was, I can do all things. That is, I can be content in abundance. I can be content in need. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know how to have plenty. I know how to know want. Those are the all things that Paul could do. Why? Because of Christ. Because Christ was his, he knew the secret of contentment. I heard one person say recently that they thought the secret to contentment was just to lower your expectations. So the reason you're discontent. It makes a little bit of sense. The reason you're discontent is because you have high expectations that you can't meet. Well, just lower your expectations and you're all good. I think instead, we don't need to lower them. We need to change them. We need to not put our hope in finances. We need to not put our hope in earthly satisfactions and pleasures. We need to not put our hope in personal fulfillment. We need to put our hope in Christ. Hope in the Lord. Take your hope off of small, insignificant things uh, like, like power and money and control and ease and comfort. Put them instead on Christ. Believe the good news. Jesus died for you to bring you all the fullness of blessing in him. Jesus died for you so that you will live forever eternally with him. In the presence of God, singing his praises, enjoying his glory. What would it take for you to be content? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the goodness and the the purity of your word, sweeter than honey from the comb. Able to lead us in the way everlasting. Able to lead us in true paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I pray, Father, that your spirit will now take these words, apply them to our hearts, and begin even now to reform and refashion us into the image of Christ our Savior. That we may walk in the beauty of holiness as is fitting those called after the name of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.